to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. I believe as we have entered into 2016, I know, just in case you don't know, our church is, uh, uh, you know, is uh, back on a growth phase number of children are growing, we've got uh, limited facilities, we've got limited leaders. Uh, the leaders spoke about that. Uh, we've got a lot of amazing supporters, those who want to s- just back us up. So we've, we, we have got volunteers, we've got a very good band, but we lack leaders who would take responsibility. And for some reason, uh, growing up in uh, uh, Singapore, we are very afraid of responsibilities. I will just be a Barnabas, I'll be a supporter, but you know, we are afraid to take on responsibility. And so this morning, I want to speak to you um, from Joshua's life. We have a few Joshua's here, Joshua Hui, I've got a friend who I just met named Joshua, Joshua Wong, we've got different Joshua's, right? And uh, over the next few weeks and months, I want to look at the subject of uh, our inheritance. Say Inheritance. I want you to know that God has an inheritance, number one, for your own personal life. That's what Jason talked about last Sunday. Of course, first and foremost, uh, God's inheritance is us. I mean, we are Jesus' inheritance. But also, as the people of God, we have our inheritance. For some of us, we would inherit uh, the business mountain. For some of us, we'll inherit uh, land on the, the church mountain. For some of us, we inherit uh, you know, land you know, in the social mountain, in the educational mountain. But we believe that God has given us inheritances, which is why He asks us to ask Him for nations as our inheritance. Of course, that's also a messianic uh, psalm, but I believe that's a prayer all of us should be praying for, that we must understand God has an inheritance for your life, that we're not supposed to just go through life as orphans. Now, orphans have got no inheritance, but because we are sons and daughters, amen, we have inheritance. Amen, we have an inheritance, of course, from our own natural parents, but from our Father in heaven. So we have an inheritance. In the Old Testament, depending on the tribe that you are from, uh, that would determine your inheritance. Whether you're from the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Levi, the inheritance is very different. And so, likewise, in the 21st century, we have got spiritual inheritance. And, I wanna, and, and I've chosen the book of Joshua as our text for this um, series, if, if I could say. And I believe that in 2016, it marked a turning point in our church. I'm saying this with fear and trembling, but with joy in my heart. So why? Because I feel that in the seven years of our history, we're in an amazing place. And, and, and I could finally say that we are in a place right now where we are about to possess and take new grounds. And all of us are feeling that excitement. And I need to speak on the subject of leadership and the subject of Joshua because before Israel could go in to possess the promised land, God had to prepare a leader. He chose Moses to lead the children of Israel out from the wilderness and bring them uh, supposedly into the promised land. Because God is always looking for leadership. Are you with me? All right, so which is why when Moses passed on, 
the Lord came to Joshua and said, just as I was with Moses, I, I will be with you. And so God is always looking for people to take the lead. He's always looking for people to take the lead. The man that God raised to lead the children of Israel into their inheritance is Joshua. Without Joshua, the children of Israel could not have possessed their inheritance. Could not. Before the Lord can move, He, he first prepares the man of God or the leadership because leadership is the key to possessing our inheritance. Let me make this statement. As flawed and imperfect as we are as human beings, God consistently chooses to work through human leaders. You have to understand that. We are flawed human beings. We are imperfect in many ways. We are all work in progress. But as flawed as we are, God is always looking for people that He can work through so that His purposes on the earth can be fulfilled. Amen. In Isaiah 22 verse 20, the Bible says that God sought for a man to stand in the gap, but He found none. God sought for a man to stand in the gap, but He found none. So we learn from that one simple verse that God is actually limited. Now, this is not on video. So, you know, if this goes out and I say, and if people just take a card from my sermon and say, Daniel say God is limited. That, that, you know, that's it. That's, that, that's not what I'm saying. But, but God is limited. He's restrained. He's limited by a lack of leaders. He is. There are things He wants to do on the earth that He cannot do, not, and he doesn't want to do because he didn't find a partner. He didn't find a leader. The Bible says his, his eyes run to and fro the earth looking for loyal hearts. So what for? I'm, I mean, why is God looking? You know, why is God always looking for the Paul, always looking for the Davids, always looking for... Because God enjoys a partnership. He's like you and me. He doesn't want to do it all by Himself. He, he, he has chosen to work through broken, flawed human vessels like you and me. Which means that whatever God wants to do in the next season of this church life, He can only do these things if He can find leaders. Hello? I know it's very quiet here. All right, this is going to be challenging. But he can only move this church from one level of glory to the next level of glory when he can find leaders who would take responsibility for lives, for ministry, for different aspects of the church life. He, he's looking. He's, he's looking for people who will stand in gaps. And you know what? There are gaps in this church. Whatever that you are complaining when you walk in, you've been here for some time and if there's a complaint that you have, it means that there's a gap. In a consumeristic environment like Singapore, the usual reaction is the staff should fill these gaps. But that's not how the kingdom works. When there's a gap, how many gaps can Christine fill? How many gaps can Andre, can Andre fill? One week he leads worship, next week he preach. One, I mean, how many gaps? Next, next, next Sunday he backs up, next Sunday he does ushering. How many gaps can, can one person fill? We are limited. Amen? And so God is looking for people. And I've, and, and I've saved this message 
for such a time as this has been, has, has been seven years and I've not, I've not actually mobilized and tried to activate the church you know, in service and in leadership. But we are at a point in our history where if we are going to grow from one level of strength to another, we need human leaders. Human, huh? Which means as you interact with me, you realize how human I am. But, we, but God needs people to step up and stand in the gap. In fact, He has entrusted the mission of advancing His kingdom to people. Remember, before Jesus was taken up, what did He uh, do? He called His disciples and gave them a commission. Does He need broken, flawed Peter, James, John? Does He need these people? now? I, I, I mean, angels are a lot more effective, right? Angels wouldn't say no, right? Will they? Oh, sorry, God, I'm a bit busy. I've got, my, I've got my family to take care of. I've got my career to focus on. Angels can't. They'll say, sure, God. But for some reason, God chooses to work through Peter, James, John. And then, you know, uh, and down goes the line. He's looking for the Martin Luther. He's looking for the John Wesley. He's looking for, you know, the, the, the William Booths and the William Carey. Why throughout history, God is looking for people. And you'll know how rare people like that are because you can somehow see these names in history and these are all significant people. But God is looking for people. Turn to the person next to you and say He's looking for people. He is. <laughs> Amen. God says He's looking. Turn to the person next to you and say, God says He's looking for you. <laughs> Woohoo! Amen. So let's dive in. Uh, we, there are eight lessons we can learn from Joshua's life. Eight is a, is a huge number, so we'll break it up into two parts, part one, part two. I don't want to be ambitious and try to cover all eight points because I'll really keep you back till two o'clock, all right? And this is, this is not a leadership seminar, but I want to learn some leadership lessons from Joshua's life. Now, you may say, Daniel, I'm in this stage in, in my life. No matter how much you try to preach and try to uh, pray, I really can't. Now, totally understand. But I believe that these lessons can also be applicable in your life. All right, as a business leader, as a teacher, as a, as a supervisor of, you know, I believe all these lessons, and these are all generic lessons from Joshua's life, yep, would make a difference in your life. And they are not complicated. They are mostly reminders. And I pray that you can also receive some truth and, re- and a revelation from uh, these few points. But before we look at the eight lessons, who exactly was Joshua. Who exactly was Joshua? Joshua is known through the book of Numbers as Moses' assistant. That's where we all start as leaders, as Moses' assistant. When, when I first came into to the ministry, and I'm not, talk, talk, I'm not referring to full-time ministry, we're all in ministry, right? we all. We have settled that once and for all, right? that there's no secular, sacred divide. The moment that you say yes to Jesus, you are in His ministry. So we are all in ministry. So, the, so, But the early days when I was in ministry, I was an assistant. I was an assistant uh, leader to the ministry of helps, in the ministry of helps. And what, and what did I do? Scheduling, really mundane stuff. But like, like 
Joshua, he was Moses' assistant. In some references to Joshua, we read that he was also called the servant of Moses. So he's an assistant and he's also a servant. And what does that mean? That means that whatever Moses needed to do, Joshua was there to serve. And he served really well. He was Moses' servant. Joshua was not from one of the influential families in Israel. He wasn't. He wasn't from some high-class, high highly-powered families in Israel. He didn't come from the tribe of Levi, which was very prominent during the journey of Israel through the wilderness. He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Ephraim. It's a small tribe. It's a half-tribe. In fact, they're they are, they are called the half-tribe of Ephraim because Joseph had two sons, all right? And so uh, both sons found a place, you know, in the, in the tribe, the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. And before he was called Joshua, he was named Hoshea. It's a great name to name your children, all right? H-O-S-H-E-A, Hoshea, until Moses renamed him Joshua. So it's interesting to realize that the Lord singled out Joshua from amongst more than over a million men, come on, in Israel, because Joshua had some qualities that qualified him for the job. As the successor to Moses, you have to understand that he was about to fill a huge pair of shoes, right? This, this is Moses, man, Moses. Moses, the guy who saw the burning bush, the guy who stretched out his rod and parted the Red Sea. The guy whom the whole nation turned against. I mean, three million people turning against one man, and yet he stood his ground. And yet, when they wanted to kill Moses, Moses said, God, please spare them. I mean, he's a, he's, he's a, man, he's a manly man. Moses! Of course, he has got some anger problem. He's struck. But, you know, he's not an imperfect leader, but... He was one of the two olive trees together with Elijah. If you read the Bible in total, this, this was Moses. He wrote the Ten Commandments, of course, inspired by heaven. It's a bit like someone today trying to fill the shoes of the greatest president ever in the world. I mean, it's, it's a huge shoe to fill, but Joshua was selected because he had, he had some qualities, and that's what we, we, we want to look at. He had, got, he had some qualities. Amen. And so God didn't randomly choose Joshua. Joshua had to qualify himself. And of course, I pray that all of us would decide in our hearts to qualify ourselves in the Lord's service. See, friends, we can't just be pew warmers. We can't, there, there are no pews here. We can't just be plastic chair seaters, all right? We cannot. You are needed in the kingdom of God. You are. All of us are not just in the city, but in the world. Some of you have been called by God to fill a gap in the social sector, in the media space. All of us have got different calling, but all of us are needed in the kingdom. So God is still looking for men and women whom He may choose and equip and anoint to bring victory to families, congregations, and even nations. So let's dive in, all right? The point, the first, the first point that we want to look at this morning, Joshua's life, a lesson from his life. The, the first point can be found in Exodus chapter 17, verses 9 to 16. All right, so, so Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the, on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. 
So Joshua did as Moses told him. That's what servant-heartedness is. Right? Remember I said that Joshua was Moses' servant, assistant. So Joshua did as Moses told him. Joshua didn't debate and say, Whoa, you got a better job. Huh? You stand on the mountain, raise hand. I must go and risk my life. Use some of your imagination. If I say to Christine, Chris, uh, tomorrow you go to India, live in that cave, and I'll pray for you in Singapore. That's exactly what was happening. You go and fight the battle. Moses, I'll pray. And so with Moses, Aaron and Hur went up the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now, the first lesson all right, is this. Joshua had to learn to be a warrior and, and a good soldier of Jesus Christ. This is the first time, Exodus chapter 17, it's the first time Joshua is mentioned in the Scriptures. The first time he came on the scene, a new character in human history, Tana Joshua. No one knew at that point that he's going to succeed Moses. Are you with me? It was the first time. It's an introduction of a new character into the scene of biblical history. And guess what he was doing? He was a soldier. Amen? He was a soldier. So Joshua was fighting a battle. And here he's chosen by Moses to lead the army of Israel to battle against the Amalekites. Now, this is a very interesting point. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And Esau was the twin brother of, of Jacob. And Esau despised what? His birthright and he gave up his inheritance. Over what? A bowl of ang tao teng. Are you with me? A bowl of red bean soup. He despised his birthright. So he was a man of the stomach. He write reviews for Yelp. <laughs> he knows what a good food is. If you ask him where's the best beef noodles, he will tell you. If you ask him about the things of God, he will die. I, I, I mean, he's a man of the stomach. So friends, Esau speaks of the flesh and carnal desires. Now, we have not talked about it for a long time. So let me just briefly explain. The first thing that Joshua had to learn to fight was carnality. And the first thing that we must battle with is carnality. First in, in our own lives and then in, in the lives of this church, we must battle. And the Amalekites represent carnal desires and in order for us to qualify for leadership, we must have victory over them first in our own lives. We must be fighting. Alright, yes, God is for us. Yes, He accepts us. We are His beloved. But there are things that He has crucified that want to resurrect itself in our lives. And I'll talk more about that. We all battle with carnal desires. We all battle with natural things that try to distract us. So there are a few things that are very interesting from this battle. The first that I want to point out, the scripture tells us when Moses held up his hand, Israel would prevail. When he became tired and let down his hands, the, the Amalekites would prevail. The point I want to make, first of all, is that these battles were not quick battles. Weren't quick. It was long drawn. They were not over in a few minutes. It took a long time to defeat the Amalekites. It's the same with us in the battle 
with carnality and fleshly de- desires, these battles would take a long time. I still remember when I became a Christian and I was trying to, I was asking God for help with my speech. I was so crude, I was so rude, I was so vulgar, and, and no one in church said, you, you must change your speech to be saved. No one tells me that. It's just the born-again Spirit of God within me that says, that's not spiritual, that is not Christ-like. And I was praying, say, God, help! I go, I go to school, I come back home, and I've said the F word. I go to school, I come home, I've used the Hawkeye word. And I, I, I mean, for nine months, and I say, God, how long? How long will you rescue me? How long? And, and then one day, I prevail. And from that point on, I, I can't even say it. It's no longer part of, it has been crucified, it's been put to death. But it's a long-drawn battle, and a leader and a Christian must persevere until he has got the final victory. And see, there are many times when I face battles with that, that in my natural self that I've got to put to death. Now, I, this, this is not on, on my screen, but can I just throw up Colossians chapter 3, please? Colossians chapter 3 and the first few verses. I like these this few verses. It tells us who we are. So let, let, let me just emphasize a few things here and then we'll move along. So do Colossians chapter 3, let's start with verse 1. If, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Let's go back first. Uh, let, let me explain. If you were raised with Christ, and all of us, the Bible says, have been raised with Christ to sit with Him in heavenly places. That's our spiritual position. You are no longer earthbound, hellbound. You are heavenly bound and you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. If you can just close your eyes and see your spiritual being, where you are right now is you are seated together with Christ in heaven. That's your spiritual position. The more you recognize that, the more powerful you are as a Christian. Seek those so because you are raised with Christ, then naturally, or should I say supernaturally, but naturally your affections are for things which are heavenly. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And so because your affections are on heavenly things, the kingdom of God, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, what He's doing around the world, because your heart, your affection are on heavenly things, therefore, Paul says, your mind should also be on things above. Which means that what, what keeps you up at night, what gives you reason to wake up and get out of bed in the morning, heavenly things. The first question you ask is, how can I make a difference for the kingdom today at my workplace? Of course, you say I've got to do your job, but how can I make a difference? But you set your mind, your mind is always thinking, how can I live for the kingdom? Not on things on earth. So someone asked me, are you a foodie? I know some of us have different weaknesses. I met a prophet once years ago. Her her name is Anne Shishla. Uh, Some of you might know who uh, she is from Argentina, a very powerful lady. But, we, but she, she's a little bit huge as a person, lovely lady, but very powerful. And, and, and uh, it was the first time that I was thrown back at least two meters. Some of you were there. I was flying. Whoa. But she was telling me. And, I was, and, she, and she's the most transparent lady. She says she's got two weaknesses. She enjoys food. Which means we're all, there are all struggles in our lives. And she loves perfume. She said, God, can I, 
can you help me? But you know, she just loved perfume. But Anne Shishla has been to heaven, been to hell, would go into a trance, and the husband would go with her on a bus ride because she'll be in a trance. All right? So and she's for real, right? She's legit, she's not weird, she's not quacky. She's just made by God to experience that realm of the supernatural. All right, but her mind is always on things above, not things on the earth. But we all have got struggles. So let's move on. Next verse. For you died. And this is what I'm trying to say, all right? Understand this, that when we receive Jesus, our, our human flesh has been crucified. All right? We have died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this is who you are. Are you seeing this? Your spiritual self, you are, your flesh is dead, your soul's dead, your, your life is now with Christ in God. But at the same time, the next verse says, Therefore, it's interesting. You have died, but therefore, and whenever you read the word therefore in the Bible, always ask yourself, why is it therefore? Which means that this verse was connected to a previous verse. So because you have died, because you have to set your mind on things above, because your affections are set on things above, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So are you still with me? And Which is what... The battle against uh, the, uh, the Amalekites is all about we are, we're, we're dead. But we are to put to death members which are on the earth. Things that are trying to just still try to affect our lives, control our lives, influence our decisions. So what exactly is carnality? I want to define that. Not on, on, not on the, the screen. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about that. Is when you focus more on the natural than you are on the supernatural. Or if you are focusing more on what is worldly than what is heavenly. You're a carnal man if worldly things are more appealing to you than heavenly things. Not just non-Christians, even believers, right? The worldly things are more appealing. You are more concerned about the natural, what to eat, which is what Esau represents. He says, oh, wow, I'm so hungry after hunting. Who cares about my birthright? Who cares about my inheritance? If I don't drink the bowl of soup now, I'll die. Really? You can't just stretch yourself for another half an hour. Mommy is cooking dinner. No, no, I want to eat it now, 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 or I'll die. That's carnality. You are more concerned for what is earthly, what is natural, than you are with the supernatural or the heavenly. And these battles are not quick battles. We have to constantly put to death. And let, let me tell you how I do it. You, you, you can't strive against the flesh. You cannot try very hard. Well, tomorrow no, I'll go and take hot shower, cold shower, I'll pinch myself. You know, it's not by mind, not by power, but it's by the Spirit. Listen, all right? I, things I've battled with when I was growing up, the way to overcome it, as what Andre was saying, the shame thing, yes, these are all true, but how do you do it practically? Can I just share with you how I do it? I do it by aligning my thought and, my, and by aligning my words to what the Bible says. What, what do I mean? All right, whenever... I battle with a temptation, for example. Whenever I battle with, with distraction, what I'll say is this. I've died. My, my life is now with Christ in God. I'll start saying scriptures like that. And then Galatians 2.20. Anger, for example. I'm so angry at so-and-so. 
And I'll say to myself, oh, no, but I've been crucified with Christ. No, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this life now lives in the faith, live by faith in, in the Son of God. And so how would Jesus respond to a situation? So you know, I start aligning my confession, my declaration, my mind towards what the Bible says. I am. I'm, di- I'm dead. I've been crucified. And over time, it works. And if I fail, I stumble. Do you know what, what I said? Jesus, you are the author and the finisher of my faith. You know, you didn't start, I didn't start this spiritual life. You did. Your Holy Spirit found me, convicted me. So there's no way I could complete it in the, in the flesh. So you are the, the author. You are the finisher. God, I want to crucify this area of my life all over again. Do it, God. And this is how I do it. And over time, more and more my lifestyle, more and more my thinking, more and more. And it, came, it comes to a point right now, I was speaking to Andre a couple of days ago. It came to a point right now where I wonder why it's so hard to snap out from a wrong thinking. Um, so I said, maybe this is, uh, this is me. Right? I trained my senses through the reason of use. I've trained myself to snap out. Come on, just Daniel, snap out. Why are you angry at that person? Snap it out. Why? Because the Bible says that uh, an unrighteous anger cannot accomplish the righteousness of God. So I snap it out. What's, what's the point? What's the point of being jealous? It's part of, I put to death jealousy. Holy Spirit, do it! When people attack me, what do I do? The Bible says I don't vindicate myself. So, God, you are my defender. And, and over time, you, are, you have programmed your soul in a way that you are more concerned about what the Scripture says, what the Bible is talking about, than what your flesh is suggesting to you. I hope I'm making sense, all right? But this is what I want to point out. Your battle against carnality is a long process. It's not by mind. It's simply by you replacing wrong belief with the right ones, biblical Scriptures, you know, with uh, whatever you are facing at that point in time. But this is what Joshua needs to learn. He needs to endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And that's what we all need. Amen. Amen. All right, so just want to move on to the second lesson we learned from Joshua's life. He was also a man who had personal hunger for the Lord. And I can't tell you how important this point is. He had a personal hunger and desire for the Lord. We read about that in Exodus chapter 33. I've spoken about that, but just let me emphasize this point again. The scripture tells us that the Lord came to speak to Moses, right, in Exodus chapter 33. And a pillar of cloud would descend on the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord would come and speak to Moses face to face. And after some time, Moses would return to the camp of Israel. But there's a little phrase in verse 11 in the Bible. There's a little phrase that revealed to us the kind of man that Joshua was. And that's, and that's the kind of man that will be qualified as a leader in the kingdom. It says in verse 11, But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So picture this. Moses had left the tent of meeting, finished his devotion. The pillar of cloud still there. The man of God has left, but Joshua was still lingering. Even after Moses had left, Joshua stayed behind in the presence of God, seeking to cultivate an intimate relationship with the Lord. Listen to this carefully. All true ministry is a result of a living substance that God deposits within us as we wait before Him in His presence. All true ministry. You can't have a ministry just by simply being very smart. 
or having some, some secular experience, having a lot of you know, concepts, ideas, been through business schools and have all these concepts. These are all tools we can use, but all true ministry flows out from the reservoir that you have, that, that God has you know, filled up as you linger, as you sit, as you wait, as you allow His presence to refresh and to fill you up. That's where true ministry begins. You can't give what you don't have. That's where all true ministry begins. All our study, all our learning, all our reading, all our thinking serve only as instruments to help us express what God has already deposited within us. See, true ministry and life comes from God alone and that life is planted in our hearts as we linger with Him. Amen. We linger with the Lord. And so later on, when Moses was near the end of his life, he prayed that the Lord would appoint a successor. And the Lord told him, I love this verse, take Joshua, do I have the verse on the screen? So the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So this was at the point of succession. So Moses said, who will succeed me? He knew that his life is coming to an end. Who will succeed me? And that's what the Lord says. Take Joshua. See, under that, that point, yes, Joshua had been an amazing leader, warrior, fighter, servant, but no one knew that Joshua is going to succeed Moses. So until the Lord said, Joshua, the son of Nana, man who missed the spirit. I love that little phrase there. That little phrase, that one descriptive phrase that the Lord used to describe Joshua was that he was a man whom is the spirit, uh, in whom is the spirit. So the question is, my friends, how did Joshua get to be a man filled with the Spirit of God? Now, you have to understand that this was before Acts chapter 2. So it was obvious, friends, that it was these times of waiting unto the Lord, of lingering in God's presence, that Joshua received a different spirit. I want to encourage this church. I want to encourage the young and the old. Learn to linger. Come on, say linger. Learn to linger in the presence of God and cultivate this attitude that Joshua had. See, sometimes in this church, and in the last few months especially, sometimes in this church, um, when the altar call is given or when there's, a, you know, when there's time of ministry, people are being ministered to and the worship leader is still leading in worship and the presence of God is so wonderful. What do you do? Don't leave the service. The altar call is not a signal that God's left. You are, you are now free. Come on. You are. Learn to recognize that God's moving and that His Spirit is ministering to people and learn to linger. You may not be responding to the word about shame. You might be the most confident person, but because the Spirit of God is there, just linger, sit in the front, come to the front and say, God, I've got no problem with shame. I've got no problem with, you know, not receiving revelation, blah, blah, blah. But God, I just want, I know you are here and I want to be in your tangible glory. Here I am, God. Isn't that how we were growing up? And can I encourage the rest of this church to be like that? Just learn how to linger. Sit, kneel, lie down, soak. That's what Joshua did. He lingered. He didn't say, oh, Moses, so I just go. He just simply stayed because he recognized that there's a residue, that God is still moving. Now, do you believe in this mystical realm? Of course, you bet. I mean, I love it when the Holy Spirit is moving. You just have to wait. 
There are times you know, I tell myself, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor, I'm a pastor. I should be at the gate saying goodbye to people. But I've not done that. Do you know why? Because whenever God is moving in, in the front, I said, do I want to soak or do I want to say goodbye to people? And I chose the better part. I want to be here. I want to just, I love it. I, I'm not a professional pastor. That's <laughs> just my role. I want to be where the presence is. That's what we used to grow up singing. I just want to be where you are. What do you mean? Does it mean that you can get out? Of course, what the song meant is that there's a, there's a place in time where God concentrates His presence. Not referring to the, to the omnipresence of, of God. You eat food, He's still there. Of course, I know. You bathe, He's also there. I mean, he, He's everywhere, but there's a point in time when there's a concentration of His presence. The, it is represented by the pillar of cloud. And that's when we need to learn how to linger because in, it's in that place that we get filled up and filled up and filled up. And this is what Joshua did. So don't be in a hurry to leave the service, church. Amen? And you might think, but I'm not the one getting prayed for, so why do I have to hang around? I might as well leave. Hang around. Amen. Sometimes people conclude that the service is over after the benediction is given and they leave so quickly. But the tangible presence of God may still be here. And Joshua didn't want to miss out and he lingered in the presence that caused him to grow spiritually in the Lord. Let's cover one more point. I've got a few weeks, so praise God for that. Let's cover one, one more point. The third, the third point, the third lesson we, we can learn from Joshua's life is that Joshua had a different spirit. Oh, I love that, man. Joshua had a different spirit. What do you mean? We, we all have got the same spirit, right? No, Joshua had a different attitude, a different spirit. Together with Caleb, he was one of the 12 spies who went to the land to spy the land, Numbers 14. And only Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. And this is one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. God already has promised Israel the promised land. And all he was saying is, go and find out how good the land is. But instead of looking at how good the land is, the other ten spies looked at how big the giants were. Look at how tall the walls were. See, we're always looking at the wrong things. Why? Because... Unless we battle with our carnal nature, we interpret what is going on around us through a very worldly framework. Are you with me? So Joshua and Caleb had a different framework. They had, they had a different spirit. So they came back and they said, it's a good land. I saw the fruit. It's this big. I saw the land is flowing with milk and honey. The water tastes like honey. I saw the giants, yes, they are big, but from God's perspective, they are grasshoppers and they came back with a good report. They saw the giants, but they saw a bigger God and they said the giants are like grasshoppers. They saw the fortress, but they preferred to look at the fruit and they had a different spirit. They had a different attitude. And what exactly is a different spirit? What exactly is an attitude? It's a way by you interpret the world. That's what an attitude is. And some of us have got a negative attitude. And all we grow up with is whenever someone just don't talk to us, oh, doesn't care about us. Right? Have you met people like that who, who, who has a negative attitude? I have many times. 
If I forget to wish them happy birthday, a uh, pastor doesn't really care. It's, it's how we interpret. If I forget to buy them lunch, they say, okay, la, you buy so-and-so lunch. I mean, there's always a reason to be negative. There's always a reason to look at the bad side of things. But uh, Joshua and Caleb had a different spirit. Different spirit. There were only two men and their family out of an entire generation who made it into the promised land 38 years later. All because they had a different spirit. Do you know that your attitude would determine where you go in life? It's not just in church. It's at the workplace also. If you're always negative, if you're always trying to find problems, trying to find fault, listen, look for the promises of God. Look for the greatness of God in situations in your life. Amen. I'm preaching to myself. Amen. <laughs> and for standing up for what is right, Joshua almost was almost stoned to death. But he remained loyal to the Lord even when everyone else was going in the wrong direction. And that's very difficult to take. Standing up for what is right, not being influenced by popular consensus. That's challenging. That's one of the trademarks of Joshua's life and character because of him. See, it's far more important to please God than to please men. Uh, amen? It's far more important. And a leader who wants to qualify himself to be used by God must at times learn to withstand popular opinion. Now, I know I'm speaking, I'm coming to a, to a close. But do, you, but do you know that in the kingdom, it, God doesn't believe in voting? Which is why there's always this tension between, you know, what is earthly and human. Because in the Bible, it's all about theocracy. God being the leader, He appoints leadership. Leadership seek the Lord and they move. But because they voted here, right? Now, it, it wasn't a formal vote. It was just a vote of popularity, right? They voted. Twelve spies went in. Twelve spies came back. Ten says, don't go in. Two says, let's go in. And guess what the majority says? Don't go in. They voted. And every single time there was a vote in the Bible, the kingdom of God suffers. Just throw it out there for you to think about this. But does it mean that we don't listen to what? Of course, you want to be a caring, you want to listen. But the point I'm trying to make is this. If you want to talk about being a leader in the kingdom, there will be times when you have to withstand popular opinion. What is popular may not be what is God. Amen. If William Carey had listened to his missions board, for example, there would be no missionary thrust to, to India in his days. Because all of them said, if God wants to save the heathens, He can save the heathens. Am I teaching us to, be, to rebel against authority? No. But I'm trying to... Tell us is there will be times when we, we know that we know that we know that we have heard from the Lord that regardless of what the popularity vote says, if none goes with me, I will still follow. And I believe it's the same in business. I believe it's the same in your family. There'll come a time when, when you need to lead, you need to lead. So how do you find that balance you know, of being a dictator versus being a... I don't know. It comes back to the heart. Are you kingdom-minded? Amen. I'm just preaching to myself. Amen. Hallelujah. That's great preaching, Daniel. Come on, preach it. 
Because how many, many of us are contented with what we have? Most of us are, 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 are prefer comfort and status quo. But it takes a leader of a different spirit to take new grounds, to see where the kingdom of God has not expanded before and to say, come on church, let's go there. Amen. Yeah, people have failed countless times. There have been cases where it illustrates human ambition, which is why I said, come on, seek your mind on things above and be accountable to people. But when there's time for you to lead, you need to lead. Hallelujah. You need. We can't be content. We're spending more time trying to decide on trivial stuff when two-thirds of the world don't know Jesus yet. We need to have a bigger vision, and which is why I'm preaching these messages. We need more people. You know, I can just you know, say, staff, come on, let's do a little bit, bit more. Uh, we, we think like a club, let's serve the people better. But that's not how it is in the kingdom. Do you know that in the New Testament, there is no 80-20 principle? You know what I mean by that? Do you know in most churches, 20% of the church serve 80% of the church? And then church experts would say, this is how it is. This is how it is. Come on, Dad, just accept it. This 20-80 principle. 20% of the people do 80% of the job. That's how it is. And the rest just keep them happy, entertain them, and they pay their tithe, keep the place clean and nice. That's not the kind of church we want, amen? Because in the New Testament, 100% involvement because they know it, it will cost them their life. So for you to, be a, to, to identify yourself as a member of the New Testament church, they knew that it may cost them their life. Not a membership club. There's no children's ministry. No nice facility. They committed themselves to the cause of Christ. Is there a reason why the early church was flourishing and they were taking new grounds? And in three years, from just a little Bible school in Ephesus, the Bible says, and the word of the Lord grew swiftly. Wow! <laughs> How I wish we can be that, that church. But it starts with people with a different spirit. Amen. It starts when we allow God to lift our vision higher, to look beyond our own needs, to look beyond even the needs of this house and to start looking at the world through His eyes and say, God, nothing is impossible for you. God, there are new territories for us to take. God, I'm not contented to be a pew warmer. God, I believe that my life is meant for something greater. I will take a risk. Uh, I love my children. I'll take my kids with me on this amazing journey of transforming the world. I don't want to give them a comfortable life. I want to give them an adventurous life. I don't want to give them just a nice study. I want to expose them to miracles, signs and wonders, to, ex to explode their mind, to see the world through heavenly perspective. That's what I call exciting parenting. And just in case you think that joy is stopping at just two foster kids, he just said to, to the kids recently, uh, and he, he said, Titus and Amel, pray about this. There's a nine-year-old girl who has got a little bit of behavioral problem, need a home for six months. Pray. <laughs> Do you know how uncomfortable that is? 
But yet the children are learning that, see, I want to be a good student, I want to be a... But at the same time, their heart has been expanded and tight. So there was one boy who was supposed to come for like a few weeks because the foster family were going on a vacation. So we said to Titus, can this boy share your room? The initial response is, no, I want my own privacy, I want to pray, I want to... All very spiritual. I want to seek the Lord, read the Bible, and this guy will be there. But he knew, because he has to learn how to hear God, he knew that that's a carnal reaction. And so after a while, I said, Titus, why you talk like that? I said, yeah, of course, why? I, I, I'm a boy. But in the end, he says, mom, let's do it. Then, of course, it didn't uh, 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 materialize. But something has shifted in Titus's heart. Why? Because he has learned to cultivate a different spirit. And now there's this nine-year-old girl. It's uncomfortable, but that's what it means to have a different spirit. You start to see the world and kingdom from God's perspective. I want to present to you a more exciting way of life than what you have been enjoying thus far. Singaporeans. It's exciting! Woohoo! <laughs> But do you know why, as I close and Ben on stage, but do you know why Joshua and Caleb could sustain themselves for 38 eight years? Do you, do you know why? Okay, picture this, yeah, picture this. It's the most depressing period in Israel's history. Depressing. Because they were at the brink of the promised land. And yet, there's this invisible barrier that God has set up all because the majority of the nation said no to God's promises. They said, God, you are smaller than the giants in the land. God, yes, the fruit is big, but we don't think we can do it. So because of that lack of faith, because they were at the brink, but there's this, this invisible force and they can't go in. You, you can do whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Come on, let's claim, let's go in. They tried to. God says, no, you, you can't. I will not give that over to you. See, it's, ult- it's ultimately what God says. God says, they are yours for the taking. Just go in. They said, no. And then they want to go in. God says, no, sorry. Strange. It's the ways of God which I don't understand. You can't put God in a box. And quote this pastor, oh, but because this pastor says so and so, so really because our pastor says this, that means that the ways of God in the scriptures are just so amazing. This, it, it's, uh, now we've got faith, God. Now we, let's go and God says, no, sorry, all of you will perish in the, world, in the wilderness. Years later, the reason for that, years later, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, is so that Christians can learn from their own experience. <laughs> the ways of God. But, but because they couldn't, and so it's the most depressing period. Because Joshua and Caleb and their family, seeing their friends dying in the wilderness, when they came out, they were supposed to go in, but in, now they, they're all dying. There are at least 3 million funerals. Very sad. In 38 years, 3 million, they die, and all they could say is, if only, if only, if only, if only. They say three million times, if only, if only we would just believe Joshua, if only we would just uh, uh, agree with Caleb, if only we'll be on God's side, if only three million times. But do you know what kept Joshua and Caleb going? Do you, do you know, know, know what? They've seen the land. They've seen the land. They, they were the only two that have seen the land. Of course, the ten spies saw the, the land, but they saw the land and they, they were keeping themselves alive because they knew what the land looks like. 
And that's what leaders must do. Leaders must be futurists. We must be visionaries. We must be able to tell people, I've seen the land. I've seen a better way of life. I've seen the miracles. I've seen the promises. I've seen the, the breakthroughs. And that's what Paul said. Paul, you know what he, he said? The writer of Hebrews said that there were some who have tasted of the powers of the age to come. And some of these men were the disciples. And you know, I mean up to this day, you know, Peter, James, and John, Peter walked on water. No one has done that. Powers of the age to come. John has seen visions of the life to come, the tabernacle of heaven, the, the throne room, the, the mercy seat, and they've seen all that. And these were men who have seen the life to come, and now they are leading the people and said, this life is but temporal, guys. There's greater glory. It reminds me of stories of people who have died, been to heaven, who didn't want to come back. God says, no, you've got to go back because you've got a mission on the earth. And almost every story I read like that, you know what they, they say? God, no, we don't want to go back. But your children misses you. No, heaven is way too beautiful. But your wife will miss you. No, to be with you is the greatest thing. And yet when they come back, they become a different man. Why? Because they have tasted of the fruit of the life to come. And that's, and that's what kept Joshua and Caleb going. I want to encourage you. Friends, this life is amazing. But the life to come is even more glorious. Even more glorious. Whatever you are tasting that are natural, are great, good food, you know, great life, great. But when you have tasted of the power of God, <laughs> it tells in comparison. Someone asked me, are you a foodie? I, I, I was halfway through that story. So I said, no. I, some people live to eat. I just eat to live. I appreciate good food, but I, I want to say that, and I don't want to put myself on a pedestal. I'm, I'm, I'm flesh and blood. I want to enjoy uh, earthly life. But, no, no, I want to say this, that there's food that I, that I eat that you, that, that you don't know of. There's, there's food I eat that you don't know of. No, there, there are great things, you know, things that, that propel me. Things that, you know, that I live for. And I want to invite this church to join me. We need leaders. We need people to step up and say, I can take care of 10, I can take care of 5, I, I can start shepherding, I can start filling that gap, I, I can start standing in there. We're in a great place. To, next week, I'll talk more about the different points. We're in a great place, guys. It all starts when you say, I will take responsibility. 